This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I would ask you, invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. While you turn, I have a pretty simple question. How important is the gospel message? How important is the gospel? And I ask this because there are undoubtedly issues that happen with any church. Any well-meaning believers, they can disagree on. Issues that believers in the same congregation, we can, we can disagree And I'm not just talking about what the color of the carpet could be or exact timelines in the book of Revelation. There are even important things that we can have a little wiggle room. But my question is whether the gospel is one of those issues. Is there really any gray area? In the book of Galatians, we actually see some of Paul's strongest words in all of his letters. What was this grave error that they were committing in Galatia? Were they committing heinous immorality? Were they oppressing the poor? Were they stealing from the offering plate? What were they doing? No, they had fallen into something in his eyes which was much more sinister, much more detrimental to the soul of a Christian. They'd actually turned to a different gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now this outside group, many of you may know, they're called the Judaizers. They had come into the church of Galatia, this place that Paul had spent so much time ministering, and they had released what was really a spiritual pandemic among the congregation. This contagion taught that faith in Jesus... Yeah, that's good, but it's not enough for salvation. Yes, sure, you've got to have Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. And you also need to follow the law of Moses. And if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be true children of Abraham with all of its blessings that that has, you've got to keep the law. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing, I'm convinced, that will harm the Christian like what we may call this legalism. The legalist adds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, turning salvation really away from Christ and back onto Himself. And what it ends up doing is it robs us of our peace. It robs us of our assurance. And really, ultimately, it can lead to eternal death. Because the reality is that when we look to ourselves, we make very poor saviors, so we ought not do it. And I would argue that this, while it doesn't sound like something we'd see, is much more prevalent in churches around the countries and much more deceptive than you may first think. Now, in this letter, Paul was so concerned about this virus of legalism that he even publicly opposed Peter, Peter of all people, when he was being influenced by it. And it wasn't one of these things where he quietly brought him aside and had this little short discussion with Peter. No, he opposed him to his face. So it was no small matter to Paul. And this morning, we're looking at the third chapter of Galatians, where Paul defends salvation by faith alone from these attacks from this outside group, because it is Christ and Christ alone that saves. Look with me now to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and its clarity. We thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us in purchasing our salvation. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that jumps out at us in this passage is the foolishness of the Galatians. And Paul's pretty clear. His charge, actually, when you just read it through, is kind of jarring. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What a commentator, J.B. Phillips, he translated portions a little more strongly, and I think it's right. He said, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you cannot be so idiotic. Jeez, Paul, you know, it's, it's a little rough. And it is, but he makes his point pretty well. His preaching had been so clear to them. He was so explicit with the nature of salvation, with the gospel, that for them to now turn away from that and go to something else, it's unexplainable. He's like, what are you, were you hypnotized? Did someone cast a spell on you and you just forgot everything I've taught you? He couldn't believe it. And in one sense, we could say that Paul is bewildered. He's concerned, really, I'd say to the core of his being, because this dear church that he had labored over, spent time with, cried with, ministered with, they were forsaking the gospel to another gospel, which isn't actually a gospel. So Paul's not insulting their intelligence. He's actually questioning their lack of spiritual discernment. Now, these are the same Galatians that he calls at the beginning of the letter brothers, and later on he'll call them his dear children. So it's safe to say that he's showing a little bit of tough love here. I also find it interesting that Paul said, who has bewitched you? Now the who here is singular, not plural, which means that there's possibly in his mind this singular sinister force behind this deception. Yes, the Judaizers, they had a planned attack against the sufficiency of Jesus. But I think what Paul is recognizing here is that behind every spiritual battle, every legalistic attack on the gospel is really the evil one himself. Satan wants nothing more than for pulpits across the world to be devoid of Christ's finished work. That he does not want justification by faith preached So the undermining of the gospel in Galatia was really a sinister scheme of Satan, we could say. And this should come as no surprise. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, it's not usually our first thought when there's doctrinal divisions in a church to say, well, this is all Satan's scheme. But it very well may be. And when contending for the gospel, we shouldn't say that, well, you're just engaging in arguments for argument's sake. Now, some people do like to do that, but that's not every case, right? If we're fighting for the purity of Christ's church against the enemy, it's a real and important thing. We can't let the gospel go. 
We do have to seriously contend as well with how the Galatians could have got something this foundational so wrong when we know that they had doctrinal teaching. Paul explained in verse 1 that his preaching was so clear that it was as if Jesus had been crucified before their eyes. That word translated in the ESV, publicly portrayed, means to be placarded, or we might say billboarded. Now, if you ever find yourself driving in Birmingham, there's one name that you probably know and know pretty well. It's Alexander Shannara. Just about every other billboard has Alexander Shannara and his number on it. I think he's an injury lawyer or something. I don't really know. But in fact, the other day I was driving into Birmingham to see some family, and I counted no less than seven billboards in the space of five minutes. Now that's some placarding. That's some billboarding. On the way back, I even saw a few down here. He's following me. But anyway, beside the point. But in Birmingham, Alabama... Alexander Shannara is billboarded, right? He's billboarded before your eyes. You know the name. You can't get away from the message. But in Galatia, it was the message of the cross of Christ. Paul had so clearly billboarded Jesus before the Galatians with his preaching. that They all should have known that salvation came through faith alone in Jesus. There was no room left for confusion. Now, one more note on this verse that isn't immediately evident. It's really that translation of the final word there in verse 1. Literally, this would have read, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as having been crucified. Having been crucified. And Paul preached the message of Jesus, and Jesus crucified once and for all. Even here in this verse, we see that Paul is giving us instances that the finality of Christ's work for all ages. There's nothing that we can add to it. Just as Paul said in chapter 2, if righteousness were through the law, then Jesus died for no purpose. Right? If we could be made righteous by our law keeping, if there actually were things that we could do to appease God, he certainly wouldn't have sent his son to die on a Roman cross. Absolutely not. But it was the only way, and the cross alone is sufficient. In verses 2 through 5, Paul asked these series of rhetorical questions that probably jarred and stung a little bit because they're so obvious, Um, but he's showing them really what all is at stake. And these questions, they support that salvation is by faith alone. And the first thing he did was he asked them to examine the basis of really their Christian experience, their conversion. Where did that come from? First, Paul asked, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law or was it by hearing with faith? And we could really say that the rest of the questions flow from that one. If they could have answered that question honestly, you really could just stop writing. And the answer is even right there in the question, if we think about it, isn't it? They had received the Spirit. It was a gift given to them. They hadn't earned it by their works. And a gift requires no work on the part of the recipient, right? You don't boast, look at me, I'm so great for getting that gift. I just... I opened that present excellently. I deserve all the glory. No, that's not how it works. So it is with salvation. It's a gift. It comes to God. It comes to Christ with hands open. And again, it's not about our faith even because that faith itself is a gift. So it's all about Jesus, the object of our faith. He gets all the glory. That's why Paul says there's no room to boast because we didn't do anything. We just received it. When Paul talks here about receiving the Spirit, he's talking, I think, mainly about the point of salvation, since it's the Spirit who gives new life. And we all receive the Spirit 
at the beginning of our spiritual life. There aren't second-class Christians, some who have the Spirit, some who don't. All believers have the Spirit. Romans 8-9 is very clear about that. You have to think that the Galatians surely recognized that they didn't save themselves. They had to have known this. They heard this message. But you know, salvation by works, by things that we do, it's in some ways a basic human instinct about religion. We think that we must do good things to pacify God. And if at the end of time, God outweighs the good and the bad on God's cosmic scales, then yeah, okay, I did some bad things, but I did some good things too. It's all going to work out. But see, that thinking, it starts to turn everything back onto us. And it can't and it will never save anyone. And it's foolish, and we could also say that it is unjust. It's It's foolish because even if it were the case, if we did have this great weighing of the scales at the end, we wouldn't do very good. We wouldn't be able to budge the scales in our direction even one quarter of half of an inch. There's nothing. We can't do it. The Bible teaches us that no one does good. No, not even one. And just so we're clear, that that would include you. You're one of the ones, right? And me too. We're the ones in that situation. Second, this scheme is unjust because... The Holy God can't just look the other way at our sins. They must be paid for. We need atonement. We made at one with God. We need a Savior. And this is really the distinctiveness. This is the uniqueness of the Christian message. Salvation is by faith, or as Paul puts it here, hearing with faith. Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But what is faith? Very simple. Faith is resting and receiving Christ and all that is offered to us in the gospel. We can say it this way. It's a certain knowledge and a hearty trust. John Calvin explained that with respect to justification, faith is a merely passive thing, bringing nothing of our own to win the favor of God, but receiving what we need from Christ. Again, faith comes to Jesus with open and empty hands. When Paul said, all those good works, I counted them as rubbish. I couldn't bring any of them with me when he took hold of Christ. Or rather, Christ took hold of him. What Paul draws out here in our text is not that works and faith are just two different human activities, but they're two entirely different ways of approaching God. Works of the law attempts to appease and manipulate the Almighty, but faith receives forgiveness and salvation from God Himself. This is why Paul said in chapter 1, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what it means to be accursed? Accursed. Has anybody here ever watched Looney Tunes? Anybody? I didn't see a single hand. I don't believe that at all. Uh, how about this? Do you know the character Wiley Coyote? Yeah, Wiley Coyote. He, he's always the one who chases the Roadrunner. And you know, the Roadrunner, he's actually pretty clever. He makes these little beeping you know, noises. You wouldn't think he's that smart. But he, he always finds a way to trick Wiley Coyote to running off a canyon. And when he runs off a canyon, does he just fall straight to the ground? No, usually he doesn't. He looks down. And then he looks back up, and he looks back down, he looks back up, and he says, uh-oh. And he does a little wave or something. And then he falls straight down. I think that's kind of similar to being accursed, right? You've, you've been chased off. You're right off the canyon. And you may have realized it, you may have not, but 
It's too late. You can't save yourself. You're going down. And that's those who preach this false gospel, Paul's saying. But you know, it's also us apart from Jesus. We don't have a chance either. We're off the canyon. Children, let me ask you a question. There's several of you here. If, if God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you tell them that your, your rooms are, have been real clean or that you've been real nice to your siblings? No, you, would, you wouldn't say any of that. You would, you would say that you trust Jesus. And He's given you everything that you need, right? Paul continues his case in verse 3. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, he calls them foolish here because the answer is really quite evident. You were saved by nothing but the grace of God. If you agree with that, are you not going to be perfected by what you do? Are you going to sanctify yourself? Are you going to finally justify yourself? Are you going to add to what Jesus did? No. But by the flesh here means the strength and ability of human beings, and we certainly do not have that power in ourselves. It's also... By the flesh also probably is a reference to circumcision, which is literally the cutting away of the flesh. But we are quick, I think we all can admit, that we're quick to fall back and turn inward and to look on our own power, even though we've heard the gospel many, many, many times. So I get up in the pulpit and we preach the gospel over and over and over because we all need to hear it. Now, in fact, I'd say the most dangerous and common attack on the gospel is not that Jesus isn't necessary for your salvation. Yeah, you need Jesus. You know, you got to have Jesus. Of course you need Jesus. But the most common attack is that Jesus is not all that is necessary. That He's not, yeah, you need Him, but He's not really sufficient. So we add our broken, nasty, dirty works to the Gospel. We add to the Gospel when we make salvation about Jesus plus my works, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus law keeping. It really doesn't matter. You could say Jesus plus standing on one leg and you know, dyeing your hair turquoise. It really doesn't matter what you add after that plus sign. We need the gospel and gospel alone. We're also going to be clear that the gospel is not a clean slate. Right? It's not just a, a second chance. Because if we had a million clean slates, we would mess every single one of them up without any exception. Some want to say that you know, your justification is in Christ, but that's the starting point. But you've got to do the rest. If you, if you really want to be finally saved, finally justified, get all, all, everything, if you really want to make it, it's on you. He just gets your foot in the door. But that's not at all what the Scripture says. This is adding to the Gospel, and it turns us into our own saviors. I think on some level, we all have this desire to be perfected by the flesh, Sometimes we want to prove that we're worthy of God's grace or find some little place that we can boast even if we don't admit it. We, we like the Galatians. We, we take this leap to self-justification against God's grace looking to give ourselves the glory. But brothers and sisters, we must rest. We must live. Even when we work, we do it under the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. There are many churches that once preached this message of free grace of Christ, of justification by faith alone that have left it to another gospel, which again is not a gospel at all. Even some Reformed and 
Presbyterian churches, even some in Presbyterian Reformed churches and conservative denominations have left this message. That's one reason why we need faithful elders to shepherd and to guard the church and why we need biblical preaching and teaching to ground us in the truth. Hopefully when you hear the false gospel, it comes to your ears. That's not the gospel. We need to know what it is. When a, when a wolf comes in, does a good shepherd just let the sheep get devoured? No, they guard it. They protect it. They, they keep out the wolf. And that in some ways the roles of our elders protecting and feeding the flock. Paul concludes his questions in verses 4 and 5. He said, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed... It was in vain. Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Notice that the Galatians had not only heard the gospel clearly proclaimed by Paul and had believed with faith, but they also had suffered for the sake of the gospel. They'd suffered for Christ. Perhaps uh, suffered at the hands of some Jews. And Paul asked them, he says, was your... Was your suffering in vain? Was it to no purpose, to no avail? Was it just for no reason at all? And I think at the heart of these questions, Paul is asking the Galatians, are you going to throw it all away? You started really good. It looked like there was great fruit there, but was it really all for nothing? I think there's actually some comfort here. It's smaller. I mean, Paul's pretty excited. He's pretty wound up, but there's comfort here. Paul said, if indeed... It was in vain. It means that there's hope. It might not actually be in vain. There actually is hope. The jury was still out. There was time for the church in Galatia to reject these false teachings and take hold of the gospel. Before the Protestant Reformation, there was a time of great spiritual darkness. where The gospel was muddied. Ancient doctrines like justification by faith, those were gone. It it came to paying your way. There's doctrines of purgatory, indulgences, all sorts of different things. The justification by faith, it was buried. It's a hatchet. It was over. But after that great time of darkness, many years of darkness, there was great spiritual flourishing. The term used for this phenomenon was post-Tenebrox Lux. What does that mean? It means after darkness, light. After darkness, light. Brothers and sisters, the church will prevail. The gospel will prevail. The gates of hell will not stand against the church, even for the church in America. There's hope for reformation. It looks so bad. You see so many things, oh, it's over. Well, that's really not true. There could be recovery of the gospel even here. It's not too late. In verses 6 through 9, Paul progresses his argument from the conversion, okay, your experience of conversion of the Galatians to the case of Abraham. And here he roots salvation by faith in one of the most ancient, one of the most key figures in all of Scripture, Father Abraham. Galatians 3.6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See what Paul is doing? He's saying that New Testament believers, they're justified by faith in Jesus. Just like Abraham, who was justified by faith. You remember Genesis chapter 15, maybe? Abraham and his wife were old. They were well past their age to bear children. But God had promised to him that he would have an heir. And God took him out. He told him to look up in the scars and and count them if he could. And he said that his offspring would be as numerous. 
And it was there that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous because he believed. Before he obeyed and did all these great things, he also did some pretty awful things after that as well. But before any of that, he was righteous because he believed. And it was faith. It was by faith that Abraham was made righteous. Abraham sets what we might call a paradigm or a pattern for faith for the rest of the Bible. In some ways, we could say that Abraham is in some ways a new covenant figure. He's the the man of faith. Paul never contrasts faith with Abraham. The contrast is always with Moses. You'll see the contrast between Moses and faith because Moses represents the law. But Abraham, he represents justification by faith. He's righteous by faith. And even circumcision, it was given to Abraham and his offspring as a a sign and a seal of God's promises to them, that he would be a God to them, to him and to his children. But that never saved them. I mean, Abraham believed before he was circumcised. Abraham wasn't born a Jew. He was was a a pagan stargazer in some ways. So it, it was never about circumcision or one's ethnicity. It was always about faith. When we think about the Galatians, they they really shouldn't have fallen into this error. They didn't need circumcision. It wasn't necessary because they had been baptized into Christ. They had the sign and seal of the new covenant, which is not circumcision. Colossians 2, 11-12 makes this very clear. He says, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul doesn't stop just identifying our faith with that of Abraham. He also shows the believers that they actually, the Galatians, the believers, they are his true children. Verses 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. You can almost imagine, just hearing this, what the Judaizers must have been saying. Oh, you're a Christian. That's great. Let me show you how to become a son of Abraham. Let me show you how to be a real child of Abraham. And in a sense, we can understand some of that logic. Abraham was the father of the Jews. So these Judaizers thought simply by their ethnicity, they're one of his children. And circumcision is the sign and seal made to Abraham. So if you want to be a child of Abraham, be circumcised. But Paul explains here that ethnicity and circumcision, they aren't what makes someone a son of Abraham. The sons of Abraham are those who share his faith. Do you remember what Jesus told the Pharisees about this? Something very similar. Matthew 3, he says, Verse 9, he says, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. In fact, Paul tells us that God preached the gospel. The very same gospel we believe he preached it to Abraham when God called him out of the land of Ur in Genesis chapter 12. He said that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 18, he said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. How is it that all the families and and nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham? It's it's not immediately evident right when that promise is made. 
But the answer is Jesus, the seed, the ultimate, the ultimate son of Abraham, the true son of Abraham. Galatians 3, if you look down in your Bibles, verse 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The promises made to Abraham, which very really were and truly were gospel promises, they found their fulfillment, we could say they found their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. The law brings death to each of us, since we've all transgressed and fallen short of it. We haven't kept it perfectly. But that's not how it is for Jesus. Jesus perfectly kept the law of God. And on the cross, He took the curse. He took the punishment that we all deserve. And Abraham's blessing, it reverses this curse, you might say. But by faith, we receive all of Christ's righteousness and receive all of the blessings promised to Abraham. Now, Jesus is very much is the Jewish Messiah. But see, He's not merely the Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior of all who believe. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And this was always God's plan. We can say in some ways, even from the beginning, from the garden, He has this global, we might call it, Edenic vision for a people, a church, all across the globe. Some people will try to convince you that God originally he intended to save the Jews, but that didn't work, so he really needed this backup plan, so he turned to the Gentiles in plan B. But as we see, even to Abraham, the father of all the Jews, there is a promise to the Gentiles. And even that promise is an expression of an even older promise in the garden where God promised that the seed of the woman, being Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent. Paul's argument then is that The presence of the Spirit and the lives of the Galatians testifies that those ancient promises, they have been fulfilled. This is one reason we seek to evangelize and disciple not just our people, but the nations. They didn't just take the gospel throughout Jerusalem. They went to Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth, right? Matthew 28, 18-20 in the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we evangelize our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family. We plant churches here in Mississippi, across the country, across the world. Why? We go to the nations with the gospel because it's always been God's plan to bless all the nations through His Son. And the name of Jesus is the only name by which anyone can be saved. Verse 9 concludes our passage showing us who it is who received this blessing, this promise to Abraham. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's by faith. And there is only one faith. There's not a new faith. There's not a new message. All believers from the Old Testament, Abraham, David, even in the New Testament, David, Peter, Paul, you, me, anyone who's ever believed, it's been this same gospel message. It's been by faith in Christ. There is one faith, there is one Savior, there is one salvation, and there is no salvation outside of His name. 
So Paul, we see in this passage, he gives a stinging rebuttal to the Judaizers. The Galatians, he says, they were saved by faith. It wasn't by their works. Why do they need to go back to works? They received the Spirit. He says, Abraham, even the one who you're trying to point them back to, he was saved by faith. So that doesn't work either. So why go back to the law for salvation? Could this be a message to some of you? Do you have a tendency to turn back to yourself? To make yourself out to be a savior. Maybe sometimes you doubt your standing before God because, well, you know, this week was a rough week or I didn't read my Bible or committed that sin again. I said I wasn't going to commit or really not growing the way that I should. And yes, we should strive for holiness, but our standing before God is by Jesus, by faith in him and him alone. And we have to continually preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over because I've got a hard legalist heart in me. Wants to say, oh, I really don't deserve that. Well, you know, I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but it's God's free gift. And while it seemed too good to the Judaizers, it wasn't. It's true. Let it never be said of us, oh, foolish First Presbyterian Church, who has bewitched you? Brothers and sisters, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So come to him. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.